Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. And uh, <clears throat> thanks to everyone uh, for, your, for yeah, all the hospitality uh, that I've seen. It's been really lovely. Thank you. Um, so you've, uh, you, you've received this in lieu of like a PowerPoint presentation. These are my slides right here, which would have probably been two, so it wouldn't have been worth all that light. Okay. Um, so in the thought of Ibn al-Arabi, when God reveals, conception takes place. There is a sender and a receiver, and in that process of revelation, something new is born. In the case of the soul, we might say that a marriage took place between the spirit and the body. That marriage resulted in an entity given to speech, given to praise, lamentation, expressions of thankfulness, and expressions of helplessness and sorrow. To consider the soul's inclination to speech, I will refer to the 15th chapter of Fusus al-Hikam, uh, which we've been talking about quite a bit uh, this weekend, uh, the bezel of prophetic wisdom in the Jesus-like word. While the title of this chapter might suggest general observations about the role of prophets, such as one would find uh, in books of theology, Ibn Larabi's primary concern seems to be the cosmological implications of Jesus' conception, and not, at least on first appearance, the role of prophets. Yet, what Ibn al-Arabi presents, in fact, gets to the heart of revelation and a prophet's role as intermediary and spiritual translator because Jesus' con conception is indeed the finest example of divine revelation. It is speech. It is breath. It is the infusion of spirit into nature or meaning into form. And ultimately, the conception and related mission of Jesus offers a prophetic perspective on the most essentially human role of all, namely that of supplicant. And that's what I want to highlight today. The soul, too, has a conception, an instance of its having been revealed to the cosmos. The soul, no less than Jesus, has a mastery of neediness and supplication acquired by the circumstances of its birth. In order to consider the speech of the soul as a function of the conception of the soul, I will pull together a number of points from different texts. Uh, so in order to keep the discussion manageable, I've uh, organized uh, I organize everything as answers to four questions. So these are the four questions. Question one, how does Jesus' conception serve as revelation and as a model for the conception of the soul? Though model might not here be the perfect word, but maybe we'll see about that. Question two, how is the soul conceived and in what way is the relationship between soul and body necessary? Question three, what does Ibn al-Arabi teach us about the soul's speech through the image of birds? And lastly, question four, what does Ibn al-Arabi teach us about the soul's speech through Jesus' prayers in the Quran? So it's a lot of questions, but I think we'll, we'll get there. Question one, how does Jesus' conception serve as revelation and as a model of, of the conception of the soul? 
Jesus' conception exemplifies an important pattern in Ibn Arabi's vision of the divine creative process. The archangel, archangel Gabriel breathes the spirit into Mary, and from this union, Jesus is conceived. And we've been talking about this quite a bit. Gabriel's state at the time of conception affects the offspring. Were Gabriel to have remained luminary and not in a representational human form, the effect would have been apparent in Jesus' raising of the dead. Because when Jesus raises the dead, he goes back to that part of him. Instead of appearing as a human being, bringing the dead back to life, Jesus would have taken on a form of light when performing this miracle. So it might not have seemed, seemed as though a human were doing this at, the, at that instant. Mary's state at the time of conception also affects the offspring. Um, when she encounters Gabriel and deems him to be a man, she seeks refuge with God from what she thinks is an unchaste suggestion. Were Jesus to be conceived in such a state, that is, while Mary sought refuge with God and remained holy in his presence, Jesus' character would have borne those state traits of sternness and reservation and would have been unbearable for those to whom he would later preach. Instead, Gabriel calms her with an assurance that he has been sent to her by God as a special communication from God to her to result in a pure child, which brings expansion to her once constricted chest and even excites her passions, according to Ibn Arabi. From the representational moisture conveyed by Gabriel's blowing and from the natural water of Mary, Jesus acquired his own traits. Moreover, as Jesus only has a mother in human terms, he acquires from her a trait that Ibn al-Arabi associates with women, namely, a strong sense of humility, tawadha, one that affects all those who follow him. And here, Ibn al-Arabi means Christians. So you, in such divine decrees as they're humbly paying the jizya poll tax, as well as they're turning the other cheek when struck. So these attributes come from having, this, from having humility uh, it, it, from, uh, be a part of uh, his conception. There is a ripple effect described by Ibn al-Arabi in which one act of revelation, that is the encounter between Gabriel and Mary, leads to another revelation, that is the quality and character of Jesus' mission. In turn, Jesus' mission as a prophet, the sum of his revelation, gives to his followers a set of traits, both social and historical, which we might call their lived revelation. In other words, Gabriel's revelation to the womb of Mary engenders not only Jesus, but an entire ethical paradigm. The source of impact causing this ripple, however, goes, back, goes further back than Gabriel and Mary. At the cosmological core of the conception of Jesus lies a more original template, even if the pattern has been realized beautifully in this sacred story. Each instance of this pattern of creation has the same purpose, to create a God-knowing entity. And each instance of this pattern of creation results from the marriage of a pair of opposites, an impassioned union. Ibn Arabi uses a number of terms to describe the cosmic marriage of active and receptive pairs, the pen and the tablet, the intellect and the soul, the breath of the all-merciful, and the cloud. Father and mother, or, 
Adam and Eve. Through this conjugal union, through this nikah, power, knowledge, will, and life multiply. That which was God's loan, essentially with, with him, with God, acquires its own sense of awareness or even manifold awarenesses. This downsending from a unitary source is the pattern of revelation. It is also the pattern of Jesus' creation, or for that matter, my creation, yours, everyone's, even if in uh, less archetypal fashion. Because of Ibn al-Arabi's own thematic fo focus in the chapter on Jesus in Fusus al-Hikam, I eventually want to discuss one implication of this pattern of creation, namely the nature of the human soul as supplicant. Uh, I'm getting to that. So question two. Question two. How is the soul conceived, and in what way is the relationship between soul and body necessary? Okay. For Ibn al-Arabi, the individual human soul results from a meeting of spirit and the human form. The human form, in accordance with pre-modern Galenic physiology, results from a combination of opposites, namely four opposing natures, heat, cold, wetness, and dryness, which result in four opposing elements, fire, air, water, and earth, and the four humors, uh, yellow bile, blood, phlegm, and black bile. The high, the low, the fixed, the volatile are, are brought together into balance. God has created the human frame as such in his kneading of the clay with his own two hands, and his, hand, his hands are, as Ibn Arabi mentions in his chapter on Jesus, in opposition, even if uh, both are right hands. The human soul becomes realized in this meeting of the unitary and luminous spirit with an abode of multiplicity, contradiction, and darkness. <clears throat> For many... Ibn Arabi acknowledges this sort of creation is mind-boggling. Moreover, since God describes creation in many ways, one might wonder if human existence must be this way, if, to be more specific, uh, humans might be abstracted from natural structures upon resurrection. Th those are his words in Al-Futuhat al-Makiyah, abstracted from natural structures. Can we be human without a, bo a, a human body? Can souls be resurrected without corresponding natural bodies? This is a big question in Islamic philosophy and in, in, in all uh, of uh, Christianity as well, in, in many religions. It is to illustrate the answer to this question to Abraham, Ibn al-Arabi says, that God tells Abraham to capture four birds, cut them into pieces, call them to himself, and see them fly to him alive, as is mentioned in the Qur'an. The four birds, indicating the four natures not only in their animal forms but in their quantity, confirm that the resurrection is indeed a resurrection of bodies, natural bodies for the people of paradise and elemental bodies for the people of hellfire. But the four birds show Abraham more than that. They also show him that that which comes to exist is needy. All created things are reliant on a divinity that has the power to bring them into existence, the knowledge to create their parts, the will to make them manifest, and the life to bring everything together firmly. God's attributes of creation are like the birds four, power, knowledge, will, and life. 
As these divine attributes are both exalted and firm, like four fixed pegs without which creation would fall apart, they take the form of mountains in this encounter, the four mountains from which the birds fly. If you've read the account in the Quran, you, 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 you're familiar with this. God has Abraham place the birds in these various mountains to teach him about the full, fourfold nature of creative divinity. He has Abraham call the birds because he too, God too, calls things into existence using the primordial command, be. Be wary of God, Ibn Larabi says, quoting the Quran, and God will teach you just as he is teaching Abraham. So, now, hopefully things will come together. This is the third question. Question three, what does Ibn Arabi teach us about the soul speech through the image of birds? In, rela in, in relation to the creation of the soul itself, birds are an important image to Ibn Arabi. In an er early treatise, in an early treatise titled Risalat al-Itihad al-Kuni, or the Treatise on Unification, Ibn al-Arabi uh, describes a series of discourses occurring around the universal tree of creation. And this is getting to the diagram that you have. The four basic cosmological agents of creation appear there as birds. The eagle, the ring dove, the crow, and the griffin. It should be here mentioned that the image of four birds in Sufi texts, an image derived from the story of Abraham in the Quran, appears in the writing of other authors. So Ismail uh, Haqqi Bursavi, a well-known Ottoman Jilwati author, describes four symbolic birds, naming them as the peacock, crow, rooster, and duck. These birds, that is Bursavi's, represent four spiritual propensities, which are ornament for the peacock, Zina, expectation for the crow, Amal, desire for the rooster, Shahwa, and avarice for the duck, Hirs. Each of these birds, that is, each of these propensities, must be sacrificed, says Bursevi, for one's heart to come to life in witnessing. These four propensities or attributes arise from the four elements from which Adam's clay was formed earth, water, fire, and air. Others allude to these four birds as well. Abu Qasim Abdul Karim al Qushayri, a much earlier figure, does so, though in less detail, in his Lata'if al Sharat. Allusion to them also appears in Rumi's Masnavi. Okay. In Ibn al Arabi's treatise, the birds are not ethical traits, but something far more universal. They are the four primary cosmological agents of creation. The eagle, you can see on top here in the diagram, the eagle is the primary intellect, that is the pen, through which all the words of creation are written. The ring dove is the universal soul, that is the tablet which receives the words of the pen. The crow is nature, or the universal body. Uh, nature is dark, like the, the jet blackness, the color of the crow. And much as a crow signifies departure and estrangement in pre-Islamic poetry, nature has the qualities of absence and, when divorced from spirit, death. The griffin, or the or phoenix, it depends on how you translate al-anqa, is the dust, al-haba, that is, non-existence. It is as elusive as nothingness itself. 
My understanding of the relationship between these four is that there is a meeting place between the two extremes of the eagle and the griffin in which are the ring dove and the crow. I think you can see that from the diagram. Okay. The eagle is active creation on top. The griffin on the other extreme end is a necessary supposition like nothingness. It must be posited, but it will not exist. It can only be sought, never actually found. More median are the ring dove and the crow. The ring dove, ring dove is close enough to the eagle to be a creative agent, but is also receptive vis-a-vis -vis the eagle. The crow is the closest attainable thing to non-existence, and so it is tenebrous, indeed pitch black, but it is also the principle of form itself. Thus, in conjunction with the ring dove, the crow allows material forms to acquire light, life, and all the other qualities of existence. It is the ring dove specifically that captures what we might call soulishness. Couldn't think of a better word. Soulishness, a certain set of qualities shared by all those who possess souls. It is more than a principle of creation. The ring dove, or universal soul, is the soul of the cosmos, but it is the essence of the rational human soul as well. As Richard Todd has recently discussed, Ibn al-Arabi and his foremost student, Sadruddin al-Qunawi, held that the individual human soul does indeed first appear and derive its qualities from the constitutional balance of the body. The soul is born with the body. But that individual human soul has a pre-eternal counterpart, which we might call the soul of the soul, and which is the universal soul, here as, uh, represented as a ring dove. From what we learn about the universal soul in Ibn al-Arabi's treatise, it possesses two distinct types of beauty. One in its very being, which he describes as a sort of form for the soul, and the other in its speaking. When the eagle first beholds his mate, because each of these have to mate, right, for creation to occur. When the eagle first beholds his mate, the ring dove, he falls into a mad infatuation for her. The beauty of her speech should not be surprising. The ring dove was born from the eagle's yearning, his prolonged bewailing, al-munawaha. So it's interesting. He's, the ring dove is born from the eagle, but then mates with the eagle. Remember that the situation at conception, as I've been saying, the situation at conception gives form to the offspring. The eagle complains, laments, and then this lamenting, complaining, the beautiful-sounding creature comes. Born from the eagle's expressed longing, the ring dove, who is the universal soul, will be passionately expressive in, in essence. The ring dove's beauty, both in voice and in form, so enamors the eagle that the eagle must be reminded to appreciate the less apparent qualities of his mate. What is wrong with you, he is asked, that you gaze upon her figure and the melody of her intonations, but you do not gaze upon her qualities and the wonder of her wisdom. And then he does. She explains the nature of their relationship and their essences conjoin in intercourse. It is the ring dove's poetic speech after this event, however, that best points to her function as a means of connectivity or even communication. In his description of the universal soul, Ibn al-Arabi calls attention to the innate lyricality of the universal soul. 
And this is the poem that's on the sheet at the bottom. I am a pigeon of repetition. My home is the garden of meanings. I am an eye in the viewing. Nothing is mine but the oft-repeated. Thus he calls me, O second one, but I am not a second one. Everything in the realm of being leads to and ends with my existence. The characteristic that the ring dove attributes to herself twice in this poem, repetition or repeated, I've translated them differently, but it's the same word, al-Mathani, is an allusion to the seven oft-repeated verses, a title given within the Qur'an to its first chapter, al-Fatiha. The seven verses of this chapter are oft-repeated because the servant recites them in every prescribed prayer. The ring dove also describes herself as second, again referring to an important feature of the Qur'an's opening chapter. The chapter is divided into two parts, as mentioned in a hadith Qudsi, that is a hadith in which God speaks in the first person. I divided the prescribed prayer between myself and my servant into halves. Half is mine, and half is my servant's, and for my servant is whatever he asks. The first half of the opening chapter of the Qur'an consists of verses revering God, namely the, the invocation, the basmala, bismillahir rahmanir rahim followed by praise and God's attributes as Lord of the worlds, the all and ever merciful, and the possessor of judgment day. This part belongs to God. And as described in the continuation of the hadith mentioned, God acknowledges his servant at the end of each of these declarations. So, for example, when the servant says, Praise be to God, Lord of the worlds, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, God says in return, My servant has praised me. Yet, when the servant continues into the next half of the chapter and announces, You alone do we worship, and you alone we seek for aid, God declares intimacy and privacy between himself and his servant, saying, This is between me and my servant, and for my servant is whatever he asks. The second half belongs to the servant, so the servant, as caller, as supplicant, is second. Praise is first. All supplication must follow praise because, Ibn Arabi notes elsewhere, the servant must first acknowledge the disparity between who you are and who I, God, am. The servant must declare God's unity and power and recognize his own inherent weakness. It is for this reason, Ibn Arabi tells us, that the second half of the Qur'an's opening chapter, Anisfathani, can be called the oft-repeated, or al-Mathani. It is a rep- repeated reminder of priority. It is praise followed by an assertion of the needs of servanthood. By being second, by being second the servant assumes the de facto position of calling upon the first. By being commanded to call upon the all-powerful using the voice of the unashamedly weak, the servant has, in effect, been commanded to ask, or, one might even say, the servant has been commanded to command. Okay, and now the final question. Question number four. What does Ibn al-Arabi teach us about the soul's speech through Jesus' prayers in the Qur'an? Ibn Arabi makes the powers of vocalized servanthood clear in his chapter on Jesus in Fusus al-Hikam, explaining the perfection of Jesus' address to God. Jesus' address to God. 
When God asks Jesus whether he told others to take himself and his mother as gods apart from God, part of Jesus' response, according to the Quran, is that I only said to them that which you commanded me to say, worship God, my Lord, and your Lord. Here, Ibn Arabi interprets Jesus' words as an awareness on Jesus' part that God is the speaker on Jesus' tongue. And indeed, God is the tongue itself. Jesus describes his own speech, after all, as a divine command. You commanded me to say. By inviting others to worship or serve God, here Allah, Jesus has carefully chosen the comprehensive name applicable to all forms of revealed religion. I think that's very interesting that Allah is the name for, that's applicable to all revealed religions, according to Ibn Arabi. By saying, my Lord, as well as your Lord, Jesus has acknowledged that the Lord-servant relationship is as multiple as the number of servants who have a Lord, even, even though all these Lords ultimately refer to the comprehensive name Allah, God. This is not Jesus' message, of course. It is God's, who is speaking on Jesus' tongue, hence the perfection. Yet, Ibn Arabi continues, each of us has been commanded, like Jesus, to speak in the form of prayer. When the servant says, my Lord, forgive me, the servant becomes the commander and God the commanded. But the servant had already been commanded to pray, both in the prescribed form of prayer, the daily prayers, and in supplication. On countless occasions in the Quran, God commands his audience of servants to pray. In other words, to command. Since God has commanded us to command, he has also promised a reply, even if that reply might be deferred, it might be delayed. After all, Ibn Arabi observes, many are those who delay their prayers beyond the earliest prescribed time, even though they might be perfectly capable of, performing, of praying at the earliest time. Why would God not do the same? Let us return now to the poem and to the universal soul's declaration that she is called second one and yet is not second. Here again, clarification comes from considering the opening of the Quran. According to Ibn Arabi and other commentators, the opening chapter of the Quran is the mother of the book, Umul Kitab. The first chapter of the Quran not only commences the divine speech, it also encapsulates it. In that regard, Ibn Arabi tells us in Al-Futuhat al-Makkiyah, the mother of the book resembles Jesus, who encapsulates both Mary and Gabriel. Thus, Jesus is the mother, Ibn Arabi asserts, and Mary is, strangely enough, the son. Took me a while to, to deal with that one. <laughs> Jesus was the secret. Jesus was the secret, and Mary was the principle of elucidation for that secret. Jesus was hidden meaning, and Mary was the unraveling, the spelling out of that meaning. So is Mary second, or is she first? Is there any way to have Jesus without going through Mary? From our point of view, she is first, because a mother must precede her son. Thus, she might be second in cosmic relation to Jesus, but everyone who wants to know Jesus must acknowledge her as first. This, Ibn Arabi tells us, resembles the soul. The, soul, the, the spirit is primary, and using the intellect, the spirit gives life to the soul. So the soul should be second. I hope you're following. You have intellect, 
uh, intellect, spirit, and soul, or spirit, intellect, and soul. So the soul should be second here. Yet the soul is the first location of realization for the spirit. It is therefore the terminal point at which the spirit can be known. For this reason, the universal soul declares in the ringed of's poetic voice that everything in the realm of being leads to and ends with my existence. In terms of speech, the soul is the first location where words take on forms. It is for this reason that the universal soul as ringed of is the first of the four birds to speak in Ibn al-Arabi's treatise on unification, even before the intellect. It is among the powers of this soul when realized in a complete human being to ask and receive, to supplicate and be answered. Much of this has to do with speech itself. Jesus, Ibn Arabi reminds us, makes requests of God in such a manner that every word, every preposition speaks truly about the place of real and servant and the relationship between them. This is best seen in Jesus' intercession, a continuation of the, of the Quranic account that I mentioned before. And this has been mentioned, this verse, uh, in, our, in our conference. Let's remember the context. God has asked Jesus if he was the one who had told his people to take himself and his mother Mary as gods apart from him. After responding, Jesus adds this. If you punish them, after all, they are your servants. And if you forgive them, after all, you are the mighty, the wise. First, Jesus only speaks of this group with third-person pronouns, they and them. They are your servants, they, them, they and them. Third-person pronouns in Arabic are classified as absent, ghaib. Ghaib uh, pronouns, absent pronouns, because the referent is spoken of as if absent. By doing so, Jesus prepares them for transitioning from the God they have known to the post-resurrection real, who will be both witnessed and, pre and present. The absent pronoun, they, is a veil. Yet Jesus reunites these errant worshipers with their one true master by using one letter to bind them together, the kaf in Arabic, that indicates the second person possessive, ibaduk, they are your servants. Ibaduk, that kaf is the your. They are veiled, but still owned by one, given existence by one, and utterly needy vis-a-vis -vis that one, represented by the letter kaf. That letter kaf also brought them into creation, for it is the first letter of creation in the divine command B, or kun. If you punish them, and here I paraphrase, if you punish them, if you degrade them, their createdness, helplessness, and wretchedness dictate that. You can do with them what you will. They are your slaves by essence. And if you forgive them, that's the other part of the verse, and if you forgive them, here the word that Jesus, is, Jesus uses, taghfir, means not just to forgive, but to veil. Meaning, if you veil them from the punishment they deserve, in other words, you, God, might veil them should your wisdom decree it, much in the way that I, Jesus, have veiled them in my prayer using the absent third-person pronoun to describe them. So you can see Jesus has a special ability when it comes to, to prayer, a special way of approaching prayer. Jesus' virtuosity at prayer, his ability to translate wants and needs into the language of servitude, is best seen in the very encounter from which the fifth chapter of the Quran draws its name, al-ma'idah, or the table. 
This encounter, I should mention, is not uh, brought up by Ibn al-Arabi, but it elucidates the point Ibn al-Arabi makes. Jesus' followers, the disciples, al-Hawariyun, make a request. Jesus, son of Mary, can your Lord send down upon us a table from the sky? We wish, they say, to eat from it, and that our hearts might become secure, and that we might know that you are telling us the truth while we are witnesses of it. As Ismail Haqi Bursavi notes in his Ruh al-Bayan fi Tafsir al-Quran, the disciples have approached their master rudely. They call him Jesus, son of Mary, instead of messenger of God, or spirit of God. What's worse, they ask, can your Lord send down upon us, when God can clearly do all he wills. There is no can or cannot with God. Moreover, they say, your Lord, when God is not merely Jesus' Lord, but the Lord of all creation. Perhaps even worse, they seek a sign after all the signs that have already come to them. And they clearly seek something of this world. Alama Tabatabai comments in his famous exegesis that the disciples do not say, we wish to eat from it so that our hearts might become secure. Rather, they separate the two statements, putting their physical hunger first. We wish to eat from it and that our hearts might become secure. Jesus chides them at first, but upon hearing their sincere desire to solidify their belief, translates their prayer and conveys it to God. O oh God, Allahumma, our Lord, send down upon us a table from the sky so that it might be a reoccurring festival for the first of us and the last and a sign from you and provide sustenance for us and you are the best of those who provide sustenance. Jesus addresses God in a humble invocation of the comprehensive name Allahumma. Ismail Haqi Bursavi comments that the name Allahumma is the comprehensive name Allah with a meme of invocation. But in that meme, there are 70 embedded divine names. Jesus says, our Lord, not my Lord. And he adds an entirely new element, the reoccurring festival or Eid. This miracle will not be a test of God's power for one limited group of people. Rather, it will be a sign that will be celebrated regularly by an entire nation from now until the end of time. Jesus makes the food element, that which had been first in the words of his disciples, the last part of his address, almost an after effect of the continued communal remembrance of God that he has made first and foremost in his request. He does not speak of eating, as his disciples had done, but of providing sustenance, which God always does and does in perfection, but which he has also asked his servants to seek from him. In other words, the seeming whim of Jesus' disciples becomes the speech of the cognizant soul, the cry of one called God's spirit, aware of his role and the role of others in creation. As for Jesus' other prayer, his statement that God can either punish or forgive those of his servants who have done wrong, God's answer remains in a state of suspense. The Prophet Muhammad, says Ibn Arabi, repeated this verse, repeated Jesus' words, for an entire night, if you punish them, after all they are your servants, and if you forgive them, after all you are the mighty, the wise. God would inform Muhammad of all the varieties of reasons that his servants deserved punishment. Muhammad would reply by repeating this verse. If you punish them, they are your servants. If you forgive them, you are the mighty, the wise. The answer was continuously delayed. 
It has been narrated, Ibn al-Arabi informs us, that when the real loves the voice of his servant, in that servant supplicating to him, he postpones, he postpones the granting of the request so that the prayer is repeated by the servant out of love for the servant, not out of his turning away from him. And this is why Jesus brought the name the All-Wise. God's wisdom decrees that things be put in their proper place. In bringing things to their perfection, Ibn Arabi says, God never swerves from that which their realities and attributes require and necessitate even if it means inspiring his servants to ask, but deferring the answer he has promised. In calling, in hoping, in invoking, and re-invoking God's mercy for other human beings, Muhammad achieves his perfection as mercy to all the worlds. More generally, in calling upon God, the soul returns to its ontological end. Okay, here I conclude. It is not that the soul has a beautiful voice. Rather, the soul is a beautiful voice. In order for it to exist, it must call. In order for it to call, its answer must be delayed again and again. This is illustrated by Abdul Razak Qashani's commentary on verse 77 of the Quran's 25th chapter. Say, my Lord would pay no heed to you were it not for your supplication. A human is only human and a thing worthy of consideration, Qashani comments, when he or she is among those possessed with longing, irada, and seeking, talab. Otherwise, without such yearning, without such prayer, humans would be no different from insects and vermin, Qashani says. Thus, the rational soul is like a sound wave between a speaker and a receiver, between the divine spirit and the proportioned body. It exists fully as soul, when in communication. The soul was created as an in-between, as a conduit from the abode of meanings, to speak, and in speaking to declare its servitude, to announce that it is second to an all-encompassing first. By doing this, by announcing itself as second, the soul partakes perfectly in the endless discourse of creation. It is thus that Jesus, who spoke, according to the Qur'an, as an infant, made his first declaration to the world a declaration of servitude. Inni Abdullah. Indeed, I am God's servant. Thank you.